0: We're going to start from Exodus today. So Exodus chapter 1, we'll be reading the first 14 verses. So Exodus 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph." And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick and in all manner of service. In the field, all the service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphra, and the name of the other Pua, and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So I I always find that fascinating because it's the opposite of what China had With their one-child policy, they were keeping the sons and not the daughters. But as we read through this and we come, there's a lot of pieces that we have to sort of pick up again because when we were going through Genesis, some of these threads were continuing. And now we are here in Exodus, and I want to pick up the different threads as we go. So first, if we go uh, 400 years earlier, back in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and this, my 400 years is not an exact time, but it's, it's, a, it's approximately 400 years before they're leaving. We have a moment in Abram's life where God has spoken the promise to him, saying, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we've seen that fulfilled through uh, through Christ and how all the families of the earth. I was thinking about uh, the, the song that we almost sang, Dave, Dave the one with the city, you know, how are we supposed to sing sitting there in captivity? And, and then the next one says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. The next song, and I thought, you know, somehow believers have managed to sing to the Lord in all kinds of countries, all kinds of nations, in all kinds of conditions. And I, I even was, I was reading one testimony and I forget whether they were in Russia or Romania, but it was one, some, one of those countries over there during the height of, of the, the communist socialism that was happening. And, and they would literally put on the outside of their house, in the, the front rooms of their houses, they would put uh, their radios blasting rock music, and then they would put fans in between them and make white noise, and then they'd go to the inner room so they could sing together some of these Christian songs. And so I thought, well... They, they were finding ways when they had to do it in ultimate hiding. Uh, Christians have always found a way to sing of the mercies of the Lord. And that is a, that's a huge blessing to me to think of all the ways that believers have been able to sing of the mercies of the Lord everywhere that we've gone. So the whole earth has been blessed through these promises to Abram. But I wanted to, in terms of Abraham, the land of promises in Canaan, God says, this is yours, this is your inheritance. But then it happens in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And so this is the time when he goes down and he gets Sarah to say that he's their brother and sister and Pharaoh is being plagued because of taking Sarah. And so there's a problem and finally... Pharaoh calls Abraham, this is in verse 18, uh, Genesis 12:18. Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So he gets kind of sent out. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abraham goes down to Egypt. The reason this is fascinating to me is because eventually, in a couple hundred years, they're going to go to Egypt. But right now, Abraham goes down to Egypt because of a famine, the deceitful thing happens, he's scared as he goes into Egypt, like he's scared to stay back and he's scared to go down, so he's got this, this, this problem. Well, when he comes back up, God again meets with them, he's got Lot with him, they separate there, Lot heads off towards Sodom, and Abraham is being told of the promise of what he's going to receive. And so we go all the way through for several. Uh, there's different accounts here. Lot gets captured with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram goes after them with his with his army. Um, he meets Melchizedek. He tithes to him, and then in verse in chapter 15, here comes again the the Lord comes to him. Uh, so chapter so Genesis 15 one, the Lord comes to Abram and, and says to him, "Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward." And so. Th- and I just want to read through 15 here because this is, this is where the promise comes from as we are in Exodus. So uh, Genesis 15, verse 2. But Abram, said, Lord, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So this is one of those beautiful verses, uh, truths that we find in scripture. He believed the Lord and and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And so we have this, he asks for a very specific offering. He brings the very specific offering. He prepares it. He sets it in place. And he actually has to fight the wild animals off of it, the vultures off of it. And so the sun goes down, and he, Abram is tired, evidently. Not just, I think, that we have to see this as being a, a, a physical exhaustion from doing what the Lord has asked him to do, but there's also a spiritual exhaustion and a mental exhaustion. There's a lot happening for Abram in this moment because Abram is, as we just saw, he's, he's come out of his father's land. He's done a lot of things. Lot went one way. He's here. He's got all of this, uh, his greater family issues going on. And, and I just, you know, we sometimes say, well, when he leaves Ur of the Chaldees, um, then he just is cut off and he knows nothing more about what happens with his family. I'm not so sure with exactly how much messaging back and forth and how much might have been happening. And so there is still this, this question, because the feeling that we get is that of the family, we have Abram who seems to be following the Lord closer than the rest of them. So he's coming into a strange land. He's coming down, and God is saying, "This is going to be your land." And as he's looking at it, there are already people in this land. There are already people traveling through this land. There's already people living there, and yet this is going to be his spot. And so later we hear, you know, the the, the land is from the River Euphrates all the way down to the the Brook of Egypt that separates there. And so he has this huge area, actually bigger area, it was promised than any of Israel's kings uh, ever fully owned or ever fully conquered. And so there was more promise than was ever uh, walked in. And, but all of this is happening with Abram. And the question that we have these days is when exactly did they begin writing this stuff down? And how much of this is being passed down from generation to generation? So for instance, the account of Noah, the account of Adam, the account of Enoch, all of these things. How much of this is something that is being is a is something that's handed down because father told his son, told his son, told his son, and how much is is truly written? When does the writing start? This is a question that archaeologists disagree on to some extent. Uh, there is the Patterns of Evidence documentary series. One of them deals with this language issue, and his. The conclusion he allows us to make, he doesn't say this out loud quite, but the questions he asks and the conclusions he lets us make is that very possibly one of God's people, either Joseph or Moses, actually was the first one to put together an alphabet and make the language written. Um, Because they would have had a lot of the, the, I forget how many, hundreds of the pictographs that Egypt would have been using, and someone took 22 of those that made sounds and made an alphabet out of the pictographs of Egypt. And now when we look at them, they are on their side from where they would have started from. But that there is a the very good chance that the very first organized language that was truly written down would have been from one, either Joseph or Moses, one of those guys, because of uh, things that we're not told here, but as far as they can tell archaeologically where it starts and where it is. So if you have time, it's Patterns of Evidence. He has a bunch of different uh, documentaries. One of them is on, ec- on the Exodus itself. One of them is, uh, has to do with the languages. One of them has to do with the, the Egyptian time frame. Um, and I, he does them very well. He researches them very well. And one of the things that I appreciated is he went back into the same places where the children of Israel would have been camping at the time of the Exodus. And there are people, there's a huge archaeological dig that's been going on for a long time. What they found is there was a huge people, of a group that was there that were not Egyptians, that were living in this one particular section that fits with scripture. The only reason why the archaeologists say it's not the the, pe- the Hebrews, because everything else matches, the only reason they say is because of a timeline difference. And he deals with that in one of the documentaries where we, we literally have a, we have holes in the timeline for Egypt, for Egypt, where we don't know that, any, we have no evidence that anything happened in this time. And if we were to close the timelines, um, then it would line up with the biblical account. And so there's naturally some people who are hesitant to close the timeline purely because it affirms the scripture. And there are others who are able to understand just how technologically difficult it would be since every other archaeological dating. Uh, dates back to the Egyptian timeline almost uh, entirely. So, it once we get past written history and we're trying to look at sp- uh, what happened, uh, we've just for a long time archaeologically dated things by what happened in Egypt. And so, if we change that timeline, it changes other timelines as well. And so, it it, it is it is um, you know when I first heard it, I was like, well, just close the gaps. What what are you waiting on? Uh, and then when I I actually went and found some, there was a huge discussion at a big meeting of archaeologists in Germany a number of years ago where they were trying to figure out how they could correct this since they are pretty sure that at least one of the 50-year things is is truly a gap. How would they go about correcting that? Because it would, it would mess with, I mean, there's been people writing stuff for over a hundred years that all reference that. So it would, it would be a a big deal. And I'm not an archeologist. So even the way I'm talking about it is probably not quite accurate, but I I was very fascinated by the fact that these, the, what they found, this part, especially just, it blew my mind, right? So the bones of Joseph, this is, we'll get to those later, but they're supposed to be carried out um, of Egypt with, with them. And as they're as they're getting ready to go, they take the bones of Joseph, it says. Now we know Egyptians, what do the bones of a dead person look like? It's a mummy. And so we would be, so they they took the mummy of Joseph out because he was one of the leadership. And so when they were digging, they found this area, this huge area where this agrarian people had been living that in every way fits the Hebrew children, except for the timeline. And what they found in there is that there were actually um, about a dozen places of honor, of pyramids with the mummies intact, or you know as intact as they could be at this time, were in there still. And so they had all of these, but there was one, the biggest pyramid of them all, um, did not have the mummy in it anymore. And that particular pyramid had in the entryway, when you go in, it had a statue of a man with a colorful coat. And, and so the only reason this is not Joseph is because the timeline, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Uh, but it has all of this other evidence. And so he went and just asked the guys, so, so tell me, and they told him all of this very openly. Oh, yes, it fits because of this, because of that. But it's not the Bible because it doesn't, it's the wrong time frame. And I said, well, that is to, I'm pretty sure that is the Bible. I think we got something wrong with our timing. And once we figure that out, it'll be, you know, it'll make a lot of, so I just, I was fascinated by that bit, that we actually have that much evidence going into this. So back to our people before there, you know, this is Abram being called the people of God and there are still no people. It's just him and Sarah. And so finally he, he comes In this moment, this is before Hagar and Ishmael. This is before Isaac. And God is here that now that he's gotten the the, the deep darkness has fallen on him, he's asleep. And the Lord said to Abram in verse 13. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the, the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites." So he gives them this huge area and says, "This is all yours." But he says he gives us two numbers. One is in the fourth generation they shall return here, and the other is um, in 400. It says for 400 years. Now, when we look at the time frame, and you look at what we have here, it's about 400 years from now, this moment, that they actually come back. And so they're not in Egypt necessarily for 400 years, but they're there. And so this is so this is the promise. This is what has been given. Ishmael has not been born. Isaac has not been born. And then we move through the accounts, and finally we have Isaac. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now Isaac is the chosen one. He has his two sons. And now we come down to Jacob and his 12 sons, and we know that they're the ones who actually go into Egypt. In, in fact, if you look in uh, Genesis chapter 26, Genesis 26, the first two verses, This is Isaac now, and it says there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. So Isaac tries to go to Egypt, and God says, no, don't go to Egypt. So I, I just find this fascinating, because eventually the children of Israel end up in Egypt. But first Abraham goes down and gets sent back up, kind of embarrassed. And Isaac wants to go down and God says, don't go down. And then we get to uh, Genesis chapter 46. This is after Joseph has gone, has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been down there. Uh, the brothers go down to buy the grain and, and the conversation has gone back and forth. And finally, Jacob is on his way down. And as he's on his way down, and this is this is a fascinating study just on the life of Jacob to see when he seeks the Lord, when the Lord just appears to him, when he try, when he on purpose asks for direction. And so this is one of those times when Jacob is headed down. And in chapter 46... Verse 1. So Genesis chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will sh- also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So he arises and he goes down with all the people. And so now he's being told, go to Egypt because in Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great people. And we see that. And so he's, he's, Jacob is being, so Abraham went and got sent back. Isaac didn't go because God said no. Now Jacob, God, uh, God says to Jacob, do not fear to go into Egypt. And in Genesis 48, as he's there, um, He's blessing everyone as he's preparing to die. And in Genesis chapter 48, verse 21, he says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And so Jacob is telling Joseph. And then Joseph in chapter 50 So as we get all the way to the very last couple of verses in Genesis, Genesis 50, starting in verse 22, it says, So Joseph dwelled in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Macher, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so this brings us to the end of Genesis. And then we pick up the account in Exodus where it says, here are all the people. Now what I found fascinating for this is that from the time of Abraham first receiving the words about Egypt to this moment that we just read is actually more time than from this moment to the moment when Exodus happens. So from the time of Joseph's death, there's less time left in Egypt than there was before but from Abraham until him. Um, if you look at the times and the ages and where they lived. And so I had always assumed that it was more like 400 years that they were in Egypt. But it's 400 years when they return. So that whole thing for the Amorites, they're given 400 years of grace that they could get things right with God. He says, for their their sins are not yet complete. And yet when they come back around and they're back over there, it doesn't seem that they've repented or turned to God at all because God still sends them after them to destroy them. And so as I'm looking at the space between the time that Joseph dies and then someone comes along that doesn't know him, new king that arises, there are several things to note. One is Jacob is faithful to tell the people, uh, to tell his sons, uh, God's going to visit us and you need to be ready. He's going to take you back out of here. Joseph is faithful to tell his brothers and his sons and saying, there's coming a time when God's going to visit us. and He's going to take us out of here and we're, gonna, we're not going to be in, in Egypt all of our lives. Now, when we look at Egypt, Egypt is a type of the world in many ways. And so it's a fascinating thing to think about the fact that God would send someone into a into the world that I mean we we see it afterward quite a bit that the Egyptian people are not especially godly they're willing to fight different ways to protect their territory and stuff but there is something happening where God says I want you to go down here and get ready and when you come back to Canaan then you're going to go in now fascinatingly enough, the first generation that gets there, they look into Canaan and they say, giants in the land, we can't do this. And they all die in the wilderness. Then the second generation that comes up, they go in and they actually take over the land. And it's a battle from then until now. So when you think about this as us, as believers, there are certain things that when we first see it, we say, I don't think I can do that. So if you think of yourself, the world, and you've been called out of the world and you've been called the the, the type of the Exodus, when which is something we'll be talking about over the next couple of months as we go through Exodus. But as we're coming out of Exodus, we're leaving the world behind, but the world is still in us. There are certain things that we've become very accustomed to. And so we're headed to where God has called us, but we're not 100% ready for that. It's the whole thing, you know, when sometimes I pray and I really ask the Lord for something and I'm 100% willing to ask for it. There are other prayers where I'm like, Lord, and I, I hedge it a little bit. I'm like, I think perhaps maybe I'm being a little selfish over here and that maybe I need a little more sanctification. And so I think maybe perhaps I'm willing um, to actually repent of that and not do that anymore, but I'm not sure. So I'm just, I'm praying about it. And so it's this is the whole thing of uh, I think, did I share it here last week when you're struggling? It just is, is code talk for I'm sinning and I don't want to stop. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what's happening in this moment is, is there are times when we get there and we look over Jordan and we're like, oh, so Lord, you want me to be over there? You want me to be free? You want me to walk in victory? You want me to be, to be prospering? And I, and I get it. That's nice and all that. But do you remember the flesh pots of Egypt? Like we ate really well in Egypt. Do you remember that? And suddenly our flesh says, hold on. Before you make this decision to cross all the way over there and go where God has called you to be, I want you to really think about that. And maybe, just maybe it would be a good idea to go back and indulge one more time before we actually cross over. And so this is the, this is the spiritual, one of the spiritual pictures that we're going to be dealing with as we go through Exodus. There are other pieces here. One of the things that I see here, that I've observed in not only in myself but in others um, is the, the fact that when we are in one place. So you we can literally talk about moving on this one. Because uh, I we moved a lot as a child, when I was a child. And I, I can tell you the friends I had in different places and the way I made friends. Now we were Amish most of the time that we were moving. But the way there was a certain hopefulness that always grew in my heart that when we would move to this next place, things would be different and better. Now, when we moved from Montana down to Texas, and my parents said that was what God wanted them to do, I was pretty sure that either God or they were wrong. Like They were either hearing God wrong or you know something was confusing about that. I, I was not convinced on that one. I had a good group of friends. We had a lot of things going for us. But most of the time when we would move, there would be a, an expectation that would grow. And I would say, okay, I think when we move, and I would, I think I can reinvent myself, you know. Those people haven't known me. What I kept forgetting to add into the equation was that my family was moving with me, and I was moving with us. And so um, I was still who we were. And so that was that was gonna be that was always a hard thing because it was easier for me to live my faith out there with strangers than it was always to be consistent in my walk with the Lord at home with my own siblings. Uh, and part of that was the history that I had with my siblings, uh, the things that they knew about me that no one else knew, things that I wish they didn't know, and things that just a simple apology wouldn't just delete and, and take and be gone. And so that was the, when I think about moving though, when, when Stacy and I moved from Texas to here, we'd been living in several different places down in Texas in preparation for coming here. But when we were coming from there to here, we were coming specifically because we believed God was sending us here to this area. So when we arrived here, we, didn't, we were not arriving because we had thought, oh, it's going to be awesome skiing, even though that is awesome. We, didn't, we weren't going, oh, we're here because of the mountains, Or there weren't even people necessarily that we knew. We knew a few people a little bit. And so for us to come here, what it triggered in us was a sense of of everything I'm doing here is for the Lord. So the same thing that a missionary might have when he enters, goes from his home church in America and goes into another country where suddenly he's like, okay, I'm here because of the Lord. Whereas at home, there's lots of reasons to be there. And so this transition into a new land can be a, a, a trigger or a, uh, it can be a cause for our faith to actually operate because sometimes our faith ceases to work. And, and when we still say the right words, we still believe, oh yes, you know, you know, we should do this. And I just think of, uh, of the, uh, and, and I, I don't mean this in a horrible way, I just mean it's a practical thing about humanity when we've been in the same place for long enough we get to the point where we don't believe certain things could ever actually change or ever actually be different. So for instance, I remember you know, in talking with uh, um, like the Wilsons, when, we, when they were here, they were looking at the financial situation here going, I don't know that we will ever be able to get ahead here. And so when they moved to Arkansas, everything, financially, everything changed and suddenly things were, and then suddenly, oh, it's still hard but it is a little bit different. And they had hope and they had faith to keep moving forward. So I don't want to say it was just because they moved, but sometimes we actually need to move physically in order to have a new perspective, in order to actually be able to do what God has called us to do. So if you, you know, I I don't know if you remember when uh, Caleb and Sarah first came and Caleb would chat with us about how Uh, what what God's calling is, and he shared, I think, at Valentine's Day banquet last year, maybe some of his, I forget when it was that he shared some of his vision with us and his calling, but it was always something that was going to happen down the road, down the road, and suddenly something changed, and now, you know, he's in Oklahoma. He is actually doing what God has called him to do. Things are moving forward, and so he now has a timeline. He's farther down the road. It still is going to take a lot of work. He understands that, but there's something about the way he's talking that from my perspective, anyway, it feels like he's actually operating in his calling and what God has asked him to do. And he's actually doing this. And part of it is the physical moving and what that requires of you changes things. So if you think about the Egyptians, if they, uh, the, the, the Israelites, as long as they're in, in Egypt, they, have, they know where their houses are. No matter how humble their house is, they at least know where it is. They know where their food sources are. No matter how hard they have to work to get, they know at least know how to get it. They know who their neighbors are. They know, they they kind of know the status quo. They know how things are going. And so for them to leave all of that behind, even though they leave with all the jewelry, they leave with their families, all of that stuff, they're taking it with them. And that's good. They're leaving a certain mindset and things behind that are, and and this is, I think to me, one of the best reasons for moving. Um, And also I have, But I've also discovered when I travel, like, I don't know how many times I will go and I'll be somewhere, you know, whether it's in Athens, Greece, or Pennsylvania, or just in Oklahoma or someplace, I'll be traveling. And as I'm looking at what other people are doing, I start getting a different perspective on what God has called me to do. And and I start thinking, when I get back, I want to do this and this and this. And as I'm driving back and as I'm thinking through, it's amazing how possible things seem. I'm like, okay. This is going to be awesome we're going to go home we're going to do this and this and it renews my faith just literally by physically moving so this is something i'm happy to chat more about i I think there's there's just something about this where we as humans can get stuck now on the flip side of that we have the need and we see it throughout scripture and we see it throughout life where we have people who are committed to something and they're supposed to be doing something for the lord There and they are doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and and, and, and and nothing changes necessarily, but they're still supposed to operate in faith. And so how do we persevere when things aren't changing? So this is the question um, that I think part of what we're going to learn in going through Exodus is is not just the external circumstances changing, because in some ways— the things that they eventually went and faced and fought through, you know, in Exodus, yes, they were being whipped. Yes, I mean, in Egypt, they were being whipped. Yes, they were being forced to do all this work, but they weren't just being killed willy-nilly. But later, when we get here into the land of Canaan, they're being killed for apparently no reason at times. You know, people attack them. And so you stop and you think, what did they gain? What did they lose? If you think of the people who died at the various times, it's a very, very costly exodus. When they go from Egypt to Canaan, and by the time they land there, and who actually walks into the promised land and who died along the way and who actually survives going through it's a costly time for, for the children of Israel. And so it's not just all, oh, that was good, it's easy. Um, and you know, I, I, I thought about this when my family left the Amish, we kind of just left. And we went to another church, and we cut our losses, and we were over there. And there, were certain, there was certain trauma and certain pain that came our way because of those decisions. There were other families who said, you know, it's too painful to just completely leave, so we're going to go from this group to this group that's a little more liberal. And then later from that group, they went to this other group. And so they would move through several different... Uh, and, and so at the end of the day, once we were you know 20 years down the road... They sometimes had a child in each of these groups married into these different places and now they were out here. And so they also have the question at that point where you might not just lose a child here or there, but you have the the question of how do we choose and prove what is correct and what is right. Because uh, in in some of the instances when when families would go from old order to new order, or maybe they you know they might start even lower and go from Schwartz and Trooper to some old order to some new order to Amish Mennonite to Mennonite to Beechey to you know to, they they can go so many stages, and so what can happen and. and What can happen is as you're going through it, there are some things that the pastor and the minister and your family will say, well, this is sinful. We don't do this. And then we switch churches and suddenly it's okay. And so after a while, if you do that often enough, you start looking at everything that's a sin out there saying, I wonder when I'll be able to do that. Because sooner or later, I'll be able to do that because I'll be moving through and I'll get to the church that says, yes, the Lord still loves us, partake, you know? And so that's a dangerous Thing too, and so when we are, and when I think of my family making that exodus out of one way of thinking, out of the, the the Amish Church, and coming out here to America, we were assaulted immediately with a lot of things. We had to make some decisions based off of, okay, so we're not Amish anymore, so we don't have to do this, but what is still good to do anyway? Um, what is Christian? What is American? And and so what informs us? And so we try to use the word of God. Now, mistakes are made anytime you have any group of people trying to apply the word of God. And so we got some things right and that have stood the test of time. And there are other things that we look back and say, well, I don't think we were quite right on that one. Um, That one didn't bear such good fruit. But we had to find a way to do that. And so when I think of the children of Israel and they go from these 70 people and this is, by the way, just another interesting study. Um, in Acts, and I want to read this in a moment, Stephen is preaching Christ, but he starts by reciting the history of what's what's happening, what we're going through. But he gives the number 75 for people who are going into Egypt. When you go back in Genesis and you look, there's a point where it says there were 66 descendants of Jacob that came in and 70 persons in all or something like that. And so people have been looking at these numbers for quite some time going, okay, which, what, what is supposed to happen here? And so if you count the nine wives, I think there were nine wives that, that were still alive of the sons, then it would be a total of Jacob plus his descendants. And uh, if you didn't count Jacob, you'd have 75 people total. If you didn't count the nine wives and only counted the direct lineage, then you could potentially come up with a number like seventy. So it's it's a it's a fascinating study. Some people um, have been looking at it long enough and different ways, and there is there is a there is a theory out there. It's a somewhat of a conspiracy theory type thing because we don't have the full evidence we need for it. But there's a question: if because the Greeks who Septuagint says seventy-five also in Exodus and Genesis. Um, why does the Hebrew version of it not say that? And so, some—I'm just throwing this out here—so that if you're in the mood, you can go dig, right? Um, but potentially, the the early church, as they were using the scriptures to preach, there was a huge section of them that were Greek, but there was also the, the Jews themselves were in charge of all of the Hebrew scriptures at the time. And so this is what the theory says is that they had a council and said we're going to change a few things in the what the Hebrew scriptures say so that we can discount them and so they would have rewritten numbers because that was easy to, to change numbers here and there and so there are actually a handful of other places where they think potentially someone actually messed with the numbers the keeper of the Hebrew scriptures which would have been the Jews of the, at the time of the early church we don't have Clear evidence for this. I'm just telling you because it's out there as a as a, something that people look into and say, did someone mess with some of the numbers here? And the reasoning for it is some of the these uh, scripture fragments that we have in the um, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, some of the Hebrew fragments will affirm that the Greek Septuagint numbers are correct, and the Greek Septuagint number this is the reasoning is the Greek Septuagint had been sent away from the control of the Jews for a longer time than the Hebrew Scriptures, So they couldn't have changed the Greek one very well. So that's one theory. We could talk more about it. I don't actually know that much about it. I've just heard one guy try to explain it and I'm like, okay, interesting. Other people say the Greek Septuagint got it wrong uh, and has numbers wrong. Um, So, just so you know, there are multiple explanations for what happened without actually having to go down the path if somebody changed it. Um, but if they did change it, it would be fascinating to know why would they want to mess with it? What's going on? Is this truly the Jews of the first century trying to discount the Christians who are using their scriptures? Because even to this day, uh, when when you meet the, the secular Jews that are still keeping all the holidays and stuff, but they are really... Uh, almost like practicing atheists, but they're doing all of these things. Um, when you're a Christian and you you own their scripture and you want to talk about their God, they, they look at you just a little bit funny. Like, hey, I don't think that's the same God. Like, I don't think you, and and it's a little confusing for them. Why are Christians so gung-ho about their scriptures? Um, because, and yet we're going, these, these are the ones that tell of the Messiah. So this is why. So I just wanted to throw all of that out there. I didn't really want to take the time to go into the in-depth part of why they think that might there might have been some thing happening there, uh, but I wanted to just mention it because you will probably sooner or later hear someone talking about that, um, about the fact that the septuagint numbers and the the actual Hebrew scriptures themselves they have a they have a discrepancy on some of the numbers here, um, and also on some of the numbers of the ages of people uh, between Noah and Abraham, um, and so there's 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 a few things there that. Where num- numerical differences uh, happen. Okay, so that's just something that I, that showed up. So going back to Jacob and Joseph both telling their the, the the others around them saying we're gonna we're gonna be coming out of here. So they're going back not to a word that they necessarily had from the Lord. Now now Jacob had the confirmation where the Lord said this is I am your God and. This is, I'm going to make of you a great nation. But he quotes also the, ver, the words of Abraham. So you think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's sons, and they're quoting and banking on these words that were given to Abraham, the whole thing about in the fourth generation. And so there is a certain level of faith that's happening here. And so if you look over in Hebrews, you discover that both Jacob and Joseph are mentioned uh, for their faith. So Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and it's verse 21. And so this is actually, you know, it's Abraham, it's Isaac. And now it comes down to Jacob in verse twenty one says by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph in worship leaning on the top of his staff verse twenty two by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And so we have this this faith that is being passed on from from Abraham, down to Isaac, down to Jacob, down to Joseph, and we see it with the other sons as well, because then in verse 23, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, and so this is a this is an interesting time frame, we'll look more at Moses' life just a little bit later, but we're at a time frame where the people who are in Egypt are still believing in the words and the promises that God has made, and they're talking about them, and in our own faith, when we're talking about the faithfulness of God, it's a huge part. Now, this is something uh, in the twice a year when the Amish have communion services, they will literally preach from, from uh, Genesis, the creation account, all the way through to Christ, like in different there, there's different orders in which they do it, but like one of the men will be preaching for three to four hours or more while he's covering this huge section of scripture. And so when he when they run through that, you start realizing you you, you see the themes that are coming out. And, and of course, depending on who the preacher is, you get different parts of the themes. Um, but there is a there is a theme of God's faithfulness to his people and how his people will misunderstand what he's asking of them, and will often respond in ways that doesn't, don't quite work the way they should. And so if we look in Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen, and he wants to, he's addressing the people. So he was a deacon in the early church, and he's addressing, as, as, as the high priest says, are these things so? That's the question. Is this true? what you're saying about Jesus and, and all of this. And, and, and where does Stephen go? He automatically goes back to the beginning, uh, to Abraham. Let's just read it. So this is how he preaches the gospel using the account from Genesis through Exodus. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 1 says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Verse 2, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on it. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. And, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abram bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamer, the father Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and was brought up to his father's house for three months. So, so then he continues on with the account. This is as far as I'm going to read. But what, what Stephen is doing is he's going back to a long history of the people, he's saying, this is how God chose us to be his people. This is how it started. We started with Abraham and he comes all the way through and he's giving blow by blow. This is how God chose us. Now, when he gets to the end of his message, you know, he gets stoned because he says Israel is rejecting the Holy Spirit. And so he is, eventually he's killed for his message, but he starts in a way that is causing every one of those people that are there who are familiar with this to go back and say, yep, God was faithful. Abraham, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, J- J- Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses. He's going down the whole account. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's what happened. And they're in agreement with the word of God until it becomes personal. And so I think it's important for us to realize when we're looking at Exodus— that it's a fascinating thing to study as a thing, as an event, as a potential, uh, what the impact is of how this happened, how that happened, what the timeline is, all of those things. But there's a certain level of this where it is personal, where God is wanting to speak to us. And, and I think one of the ways that we look at this is the word of the Lord spoken to an earlier generation determined the course of the Exodus. So there was a word of the Lord that was spoken. So in our day and age, uh, in, in 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 you know just even this past, well, if you go back to 2016 until now, the level of prophecies that have been spoken about what's going to happen with Trump, what's going to happen with uh, COVID, what's going to happen with Biden. like There have been so many prophecies. A few pastors have come back and said, uh, we were wrong in how we actually prophesied um, and have repented of it. I mean, uh, we had one just here locally um, who actually died um, last year, but in in the In the run-up to the election, he was prophesying that Trump was going to win and this and that. He prophesied a number of things. When it didn't happen the way he prophesied, he actually made a YouTube video and said, Listen, according to the scripture, if we prophesy something and it's wrong, then we're false prophets. And I prophesied that this was going to happen and this was going to happen, and it didn't happen at all. And so he then took the time to, number one, apologize and say I was wrong. And number two, he said, what went wrong? Why was I so convinced of something that actually wasn't what God was doing and wasn't what actually happened then? And so, and he didn't use the cheap out of saying, ah, it was because um, the election was stolen. He didn't go there. Because he, he could have. He could have fully said, oh, you know, I, I prophesied what God was wanting to do. But then this other thing, he didn't do any of those things because some of the other people who prophesied used that as an excuse to say. And, and the thing about prophecy is that if it truly is the Lord and he's telling us of something to come, then it needs to come to pass because the Lord is speaking. And so when, when the Lord says to Abraham, it's going to be 400 years and then you're going to come out, Well, the people, when he says the fourth generation, they're able to look at the fourth generation. It's in, uh, so we have Levi, Kohath, Amram, and Moses. So Levi and his son Kohath and the other two sons, they actually went into Egypt. And it was, so there's Levi, Kohath, Amram, and then Moses is leaving. So that's the fourth generation. So now You could count from here because actually Kohath went into Egypt too, but he was probably still a child. And so you have four generations that are in the captivity. And they lived 137 years, 133 years, 137 years. And then Moses comes along, whom we always considered as being an old man, 120 years. He died young because his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather all lived longer than he did. And so even though he had 40 years here and 40 years there and another 40 years here, he actually died young. So the generations, the way they could have known each other and known what was happening, there is enough time to, one, remember the word of the Lord and say, we need to be faithful to the Lord and follow him. But there's also enough time to say, ah, I don't know about this. I don't know if we're on the right, I don't get it. And so the fact that there was a faithfulness in Egypt that caused Amram and his wife to say, we're going to take care of Moses and we're not going to just kill him. We're going to, there's a reason why it says by faith, his, you know, his parents basically get into the Hebrew wall of faith. Um, And so, so as these generations are coming down to this moment, There is a word from the Lord that says, you're going to come out in the fourth generation. That means that in the life of Moses, he's going to come out. Now, I suppose that we could look at it and say, okay, well, there was some leeway because Jacob also came down to Egypt. So in the time of Amram, if he would have, if that's the fourth generation, if he would leave, you know, if he was still alive at the Exodus, okay, so he's the one. Um, we could have even said, well, because Kohath was already a child when, when they went into Egypt, then it could have been one of the sons of Moses when they left. So we, we have some wiggle room, right? And so this is actually a, and I bring this up just because prophecy in and of itself, in retrospect, we often look at it and say, ah, here's what God meant. And he also meant this. And we see two or three applications for how it came out. And so, so that's just with actual prophecy. Full out prophecy. So we're able to look at it and say, well, we could apply it this way or we could apply it this way. But then if you add in the sort of fortune telling prophecy that happens all the time now, see, I had a prophecy once that someone prophesied to me. And so this was at a time when I was praying about a particular young woman wanting to get married to her. And I was trying to understand the will of the Lord. And someone came to me and prophesied and said, okay, so I see ahead of you a desert and your path is lined with flowers all through the desert. And I'm like, so is this a good prophecy or a bad prophecy? And like what what is like there's flowers and there's a desert and it's it's like you're walking in the desert but you're happy. And I'm like, okay, so like truly what does this mean? Do I marry the girl or not? Like what's what does this prophecy actually mean? And it was so vague and yet it was spoken as the word of the Lord. And so I didn't want to dishonor the Lord or his people. So I have to take it and say, okay, Lord, what does this mean? So what it has meant for me over the past 20 something years is that there are times when I'm walking in through bleak times. And I'm just like, yes, Lord, even in the midst of the, like that scripture where, you know, in the middle of the place, uh, in the middle of dry land, um, there's pools, pools in the desert, that, that scripture um, where God is able to bless me wherever but it didn't feel to me like a very specific prophecy or something that I could actually measure and say, you are a man of God, or you gave me a false prophecy. And so to actually step out on a limb and to prophesy something and to say, this is what's going to happen is very, very dangerous if it's not the Lord speaking through you. And so in recent years, it's I say recent years, there may be circles where it's been more, but like in the charismatic circles and others, um, and, and I've seen it, you know, where people will speak the word of the Lord. Now, sometimes we don't say it's the word of the Lord. We just say, this is what I see happening. Uh, and we, we, we read the future. This is the path we're headed on. Um, and what's fascinating for that is if you're able to get back and see what people, you know, in previous generations saw the direction we were headed and what was happening. And sometimes they were correct and sometimes they were not. And so there is, a, there is a sense in which we today don't have that clear prophetic word for us and our people that Abraham, that God had given to Abraham that was applied to Isaac, Jacob, and then the children of Israel as they come out of Exodus. We weren't told this is your land and this is what you, what's going to happen. We were given some other scripture. We were given some other promises. We were given some other uh, words that were spoken Uh, either by our earlier uh, family members, our own family members, you can even look at our founding fathers and look at some of the things that were spoken and say that is somewhat prophetic, that there is something of God in this and it's telling the future and it's giving us some instruction on how we ought to live. But we don't have the specific clear word that says in the fourth generation, you're going to leave Egypt and you're going to come back and you're going to take over this land. But they had that. And even with that when they come out, you know, we we get with them over there to Jordan they send in the spies, the spies come back. Ah, oh, it's horrible. And so even with that specific word, it wasn't quite enough for everybody. And so one of the personal applications that I want to take out of this is I want to make sure that I am identifying the word of God that applies to me, to what I'm supposed to be doing, and I want to be doing that. And I can't always find, like I mentioned earlier, the specific prophecy where you know, someone says this and this and that happens. I hear a lot of prophecy in different ways. And I'm always, I was so blessed when the pastor here locally um, you know, basically publicly repented and said, I'm, I was wrong. And then he went on and said, this is why I was wrong. I got carried away with some things that other people were saying. And I didn't even stop to pray and ask the Lord what he was wanting to do. I just felt all taken up with what was going on and I said what I said. And I shouldn't have done that. And I agreed with him, he shouldn't have done that. There are many things that he could have said that would have been perfectly in alignment with scripture. But that was not that was not okay where he went with it. And there were others who went there who still haven't retracted, or many of them have just adjusted and said, Oh, well, everything God said to me then actually applies to 2024 or whatever. And so then so that now so now we, you know, we're just kicking the can down the road. And so it is possible that we make timing mistakes, but when it comes to prophecy and speaking on behalf of the Lord, we have to be very, very careful. And so one of the places that we're very safe with that has stood the test of time is the scripture themselves. And so there might be specifics, as I mentioned before, specific things. Like there are times when a, when a father of a family says has been praying and is seeking the Lord, and he tells his children and his sons, and he says, you know, I believe this is what God has called us to do. Well, long after he's gone on, His sons can say, do you remember what dad used to say that God called us to do? I think that's right. I think we're supposed to be doing this. And so you can have generations who have a direction that's been set because somewhere back here was a man or a woman who was seeking the Lord, usually both. And they were seeking the Lord, hearing from the Lord, and they were encouraging their children, giving them direction and instruction on the way that they should walk and it's impacting generations. And that's powerful. And I think that happened here for us in the Exodus account uh, during the time of the captivity because we have uh, Jacob saying it. We have Joseph saying it. It's something that they talk about when they talk about who they are, their identity as a people. They talk about these words that were given to Abraham, the promise that was given to him. So we have a different sort of a promise that has been given to us. And there's much in the scripture that applies specifically to you and I in relation to our relationship with the living God. But what I find fascinating in looking at 2,000 years of church history is how there are some things that we keep circling back to and saying, "This is what we're here for. This is why we're here. This is why we're here." And one of those, you know, I, I, I often quote the verse out of Acts 2:42, where it says, "They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer." And in the Apostles' Doctrine, if we say, well, what is the Apostles' Doctrine? Well, we just read a piece here where Stephen is, is saying, this is what happened to the patriarchs, and then he's getting ready to say, and this is how it applies to us. Well, that's what they did throughout the New Testament, and that is still what we teach and preach. So if you think about Peter and the early church, and they're coming together, and what are they talking about? They're talking about things like the Exodus and how it applies to us today. Where is Jesus in all of this? How does it apply? That's what they were teaching and preaching then. And so when Jesus was coming to the end of his time here on earth, he said, go and tell the others what you have learned of me, what you've heard of me. And that's what they did. And then the next generation said, well, this is what I learned from them. And they learned this from God. And so what do we keep? We keep repeating the same things over and over and over again until one day you and I heard it. And so we've gone through generations, we've gone through several iterations of translations, like we're no longer listening to it in the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic, we're actually hearing it in our own language and not just us, but, you know, Papua New Guinea, um, just all the different places. Everyone's hearing it in their own language, but what are we hearing? And this is the part that encourages me mightily about the Church of Jesus Christ, is that we have a strong enough promise and a strong enough word from the Lord that we can say with certainty, this is the word of God. And we're not having to say, oh, you know, and this is, I'm saying this because when we went to Stacy's side of the family, we went to the Heritage Center and the accounts of the creation and the flood that are there are a bit sketchy, but they're still recognizable, right? And so you can say, well, there was an old medicine man once, and he, this is what he used to say. And so there was, a, you know, there was a big flood, and the muskrat actually was able to save us all. Um, and, and so you're like, wait, what? And, and so when you look at the, if something is not written down, but it's just passed down from generation to generation, I might give the account wrong to the next generation. But the huge blessing for us is that whether Joseph or Moses or whoever actually started the writing of the languages, um, the fact is, at that point is when the written languages emerged, at the time when God was giving his law and the history of creation to his people. And so from then until now, we have written accounts, not just our own, but we have external sources and other evidences and we have all of these uh, now we have you know thousands of fragments of scripture that are coming from different places and you say okay so if they had this part of the scripture here and it agrees with this part of the scripture we had over there and you start realizing the the overwhelming evidence that we have that this is the Word of God this is what he spoke to his people and it's for us today. And so in the same way that the children of Israel could say, ah, in the fourth generation, after 400 years. Now, again, can you imagine the discussion? Um, Are we actually suffering for 400 years after the king comes in here uh, that doesn't know Joseph? And this king could have been a a pharaoh in Egypt. It could have been another faction that actually might have uh, taken over Egypt politically. There's some discussion as to what actually was going on at that time. We may get into it more later. But here they are and they've been given a promise now with 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 jeremiah and, and during the exile and isaiah and those and then you have daniel reading the old scrolls going okay so here's what god said it's been 70 years nehemiah and ezra and those guys are saying it's, it's time something's happening it's time they had a time frame too and so that time might have been a little bit easier this one might've been a little bit harder while you were in it to say, so does the 400 years start the day I got my first whipping or does the 400 years start? Like when does it start? And so when we look at history, we see that, Oh, the 400 years started when the word was given. So, so ours may not have the time as in years num- numerated for us, but the word of God is here and it gives us something. So I just wanted to read what Peter did when he was, teaching others what he had heard from Christ. And I want us to think about the fact that this is also what we preach. This is what, you know, not just our little fellowship, but churches around the world, we preach about this. We call it the gospel of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 10, so this is when Peter is preaching to the house of Cornelius. So Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. And when I, when I read through this, I want you to think about what Peter is saying about Jesus and how these are, still the, the, these are still the planks of what we preach about as believers. This is still what we believe to this day. So Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. "...him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins." So while Peter was still preaching these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And in um, verse 47, it says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. So what's fascinating is here, what does he talk about? Well, just going backwards up the list again, he talks about baptism, He talks about believing, uh, coming, that believing brings salvation. He talks about how Jesus was foretold by the prophets, that Jesus is the final judge of the living and the dead. He talks about the resurrection, the death of Christ. He talks about the witnesses, the miracles Jesus did, the fact that Jesus was anointed by God. And he says that with Jesus, this is the way of peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. And he opened it by saying, In every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And so these are pieces that we still preach and say this is the heart of what our Christianity is it's about Jesus. We have the death, burial, and resurrection. But we, we have the fact that prophets in the past foretold him. And we have the fact that there's coming a day when he's sitting on the, he's judging every, the whole earth. He is the judge of the whole earth. So we have the past, we have the present, we have the future. And if this is part of who we as believers are. And so while it may not be as exciting as someone coming and prophesying to you specifically on what sort of Ferrari you're going to have when you're 35, it is better. It is good that God gives us his word. Now, some of you are going, if God would have just prophesied that, I could go back in time and be 35 again. That'd be great. <laughs> but that's not what, you know what I mean, is that there, is, there are sometimes promises that God gives us. And when I think of in my own family, the words that my dad taught us and what we learned together, it really is summed up in that we want to be here in the word of God. The word of God determines who we are and where we go. Now, different ones of us live it out in different levels of faithfulness, how we embrace the word of God. But this is truly what defines who we are. This is where we learn who God is and how we are to fit in. So God is still faithful. He's preserving us in Egypt for our good and his purposes, preparing for the bringing out or the exodus. And so I want to understand for my generation how to have that faith that Joseph had when he said, we're gonna be out of here and when you go, take my bones. Like he's giving instruction. They listened, they took him. They took his mummy right out of Egypt and took him up there and buried him. And so when I think about that, he was so confident that God was working. So it won't sound the same in my generation. I won't necessarily have to tell my boys, take my bones with you when you go. But there is something that signifies my faith in God's word that I can stand on and say to my sons and to my brothers and to those around me that will stand for faith in God and the faithfulness of God in the same way that this moment was for Joseph. And so, this is my introduction to Exodus. It's a little bit of a wide-ranging piece, but I'm, I'm hoping that as we dive into some of it that we will get moments of his, where we talk about the history, where we talk about the spiritual significance, and we talk about the foundations that God continues to build through Exodus. He starts in Genesis with the way he interacts with people, and then he goes through Exodus showing how he interacts, not just with individuals, but with his people as a whole so it's fascinating to see this because we serve the same God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve the same God. And for him, when we talk about the Exodus, we're not talking to him about something that we read in the scripture or some history book. We're talking about something that he did. And if you remember how there are certain things you did, even if it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you did something with your children or with other people and you did something, you remember that in a different way than if you just read it in a book. So we have a very living God who remembers his faithfulness to Israel and intends for us to experience his faithfulness now. The question is, if I'm not instructing my sons to carry my bones out of Egypt, what am I telling them? What is that part that I'm instructing them? It may be what I just read, what Peter preached out here, where I'm like, this is the heart of the gospel. It may be something more specific for our family. But that's the beauty of our creator, God, is he is working in each of us specific things, while at the same time working in all of us some of the same things. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. You are the God who hears. You're the God who sees. You are our shepherd. You are with us. And yet you also call us to yourself so that we can walk with you in a way that we can sense your presence at times. And so as we begin the study of Exodus, Lord, we want our hearts to be awakened to the promise that you have for us. And part of that promise comes down through Abraham, that in through Christ, all the families of the earth have been blessed, Lord. Lord. But there are other things that we need to know and see for this season that we live in and for the times that we are having to walk in. So we ask that as we look at Exodus, you would awaken us and show us the path for us to walk in and help us to walk in the promise that you've given us through your word. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.